Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you as your people, your needy people. Lord, we ask that you change us this morning. Not because we want to be changed or because it's our deepest desire to change, but we, we ask you to change us because we know we needed to be changed. Because of the gospel of God, change us in Christ. Lord, we ask for your help. Lord, we pray for John Michael. We pray that you heal him. Lord, we pray for Jonathan Pence. Lord, heal him. Lord, we pray for Miss Debbie Brashears. Lord, heal her. We pray for Karen Anderson. Please heal her. We pray for, pray for Claire Reddit. We ask that you hear our prayer and that you heal her. We are so thankful that Miss Penny is here with us. We are so thankful that Wallace and Morgan are here with us. Lord, they are an answer to your prayers. Lord, we rejoice with April Jeffries for providing this new opportunity for her. Lord, you hear our prayers and we rejoice. Lord, we pray for Cynthia. Lord, heal her. We pray for John Reagan's mother, Rick Abernathy's father. Lord, we see the destruction and the evil and the sickness that sin has caused in this world. And we ask you to come quickly. Lord, we pray for the future of our church. We pray for our ruling elders as they, as they search for this pulpit committee, as they put names together. Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guide our church. Bless our church. And Lord, as a church placed in this community, we, we pray for the community around us, for upcoming elections, for the community, that we may care for your creation as your stewards, that we might work with integrity and with love for our neighbor and for the good of your kingdom. 
Lord, we pray for the RUF ministry at Old Miss. May she find a faithful minister of the gospel. We pray for our missionaries, Mark and Liz Scheibe, as they minister and care for other ministers in Belfast. Lord, we pray for peace in Ukraine. We pray for the people who have fled from their homes. We pray for those who have stood to fight for their homes. Lord, we just pray for your mercy. And Lord, this morning, help us fall in love with your word. Protect me from preaching my own words, which would be so fruitless. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come down in your power. The same power that raised Lazarus from the dead, we ask that we'll be here this morning. And that you who are faithful will rise our souls out of the pit that they have fallen in. May you nourish us. May you lavish your grace upon us, which has been given to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, we're jumping right into the text where we left off from last week. And as we saw last week, there's been a division. A division amongst the Jews because of something that Jesus has done. Jesus has just performed what we see in John's Gospel is the seventh and last sign of the Messiah. He is raised Lazarus from the dead. And there were those who saw this sign and rightfully so believed. They believed that Jesus was God's Messiah. They believed that Jesus was the Son of God Himself in the flesh. And they believed in the sign and to whom the sign pointed. However, we are told that there were others who saw this great sign, other Jews who saw this great sign, and they did not believe, yet they ran to the Pharisees to tattle. They ran to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who had been appointed since the time of Moses to be ordained for an office to teach the people the word, and they ran and they saw Jesus as a threat. They saw Jesus as a threat. This Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came to bring salvation, the one to save them, they saw as the destroyer. Last week we came to grips with that irony. They saw the Savior of the world, and they thought that he was going to destroy their world. If you weren't here last week, 
I recommend you, you go and listen to the blindness of their hearts. They were supposed to see, and yet they did not see. Well, this week we come to verse 49 and we meet the chief priest. The high priest, as John calls him in verse 51, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was appointed priest by the Roman prefect. And this office, one commentator said, was like a football. This office, you didn't know what was going to happen next. American football, by the way, not, not, not European football. A football bounces and you don't know where it's going to go. This office was no longer just given to Aaron's son in the line of, in the line of Aaron. This office was a political office. And Caiaphas, who held this office, whose heart, as we're about to see, was just as darkened, as just as blind as the Pharisees. He did not see Jesus for who he was. The high priest, right? The high priest. The one who stood in the place of the people of God, offering atonement for the people of God. Who went into the holy of holies and beheld the glory of God, did not see God right in front of him. Because of the blindness of his heart. He did not see Jesus. But then we also see that the Apostle John gives us a glimpse into the deep things of God. And as we read this passage, I'm going to ask three questions. The first question, is God in control of all things? How are we supposed to understand, as verse 49 and verse 50 tell us, that Caiaphas said something and God used what he said for good? Caiaphas, the high priest, said, let's kill Jesus. In the sinfulness and the darkness of his heart, and yet John tells us he prophesied for God. Is God in control? The second question I want us to ask, if God is in control of all things, how does God control all things? How does he do it? What's the point? And the third question, if God is in control of all things, and we see how God is in control of all things, then the obvious next question is, why does God control all all things. And I hope what we see in this passage this morning is that is the same thing that the original audience to, that John was writing to that we see is that in the words of Caiaphas, no matter how ill-intentioned his words were, God used it for his own glory. And God used it for the sake of his people. So let us go into the text and, and try to answer the first question. Is God in control 
of all things. In verse 49, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said to the Sanhedrin, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand. Caiaphas is being pretty harsh here, right? He's basically looking at these 70 leaders, and as we, we saw last week, this is the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the third branch. It's not coming to my mind. Judiciary. And he's saying, you idiots. There is no question to be asked. You know what needs to happen? We need to kill Jesus. What are we to do? We kill Jesus. We kill him. For it's far better, he, John tells us in verse 50, it is far better that one man should die than the entire nation to perish. Caiaphas sees Jesus as a threat. Caiaphas is afraid of man rather than God. Caiaphas is blind. And if this chapter ended right here, we as the reader should be terrified. Right? He wants to kill Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. What are we going to do? But the Apostle John interjects. He gives us the omnipotent narrator, the stance from the omnipotent narrator. And he says, he, Caiaphas, did not say this on his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is what R.C. Sproul says about this verse. The comment of Caiaphas and the meaning behind it, which was true but unknown to him, shows us God's intention and the intentions of people work together to bring about the events of history. Caiaphas wanted Jesus to die for the sake of political salvation. God wanted Jesus to die to save his people from their sin. God works in and through the intentions of fallen people to bring about his good will. The apostle has given us insider information. He's telling us Caiaphas is wrong. He wants to kill Jesus for political gain. But God wants to kill Jesus for the salvation of his people. And God uses his words. This is the death sentence that leads us to the cross. And God uses this sinful proud, arrogant words to bring about his own purposes. And this should remind us of the great story and one of the best known stories in the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. And it leads us to the end of Genesis, to one of the best known passages in chapter 50, verse 20. You remember Joseph? He was a child of Jacob and of Rachel. And Joseph had a dream one day, and he told his brothers this dream, and this dream was that all of his brothers would come and bow down before him. And what did his brothers do? 
That's a good dream. No, that's not what they did. His brothers wanted to kill him. And rather than kill him, they threw him in this pit to leave him to die. And then they saw some traitors and they said, let's not just let him die. Let's make some money off of him. Let's sell him into slavery. And so they sold Joseph into slavery and he was led into Egypt where he's eventually sold to Potiphar. And in Potiphar's house, he prospered. He became head over Potiphar's house until he was falsely accused. And then he was sent to prison. And then we're reminded throughout this story that God was with Joseph. Joseph spent over two years in prison. And if you remember, in prison, Joseph also flourished. He became the head of the prison while in prison. And then two prisoners came. Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's cupbearer. And he interpreted their dreams for them. Both interpretations came true. The cupbearer was lifted out of prison. And what were Joseph's last words to him? Remember me. And the cupbearer did not remember Joseph. For two more years, Joseph was in prison. Until Pharaoh had a dream. And then the cupbearer was like, oh, hey, I, I know this guy that interprets dreams really well. Let's go find him. And Joseph, after interpreting Pharaoh's dream, got promoted. He wore the signet ring of the Pharaoh and was the right-hand man of Pharaoh, the second most powerful person at that time in the world. And Joseph's interpretation of this dream was there will be seven years of harvest, of good harvest, followed by seven years of famine. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge, and he stored up all of this food. And what happened during the seven years of famine? The entire world came to Egypt because they were hungry, including Joseph's brothers. And this is where they found Joseph in charge of everything. This brother that they intended to kill, they sold into slavery, who spent time in prison, who was forgotten by the cupbearer. We find the second most powerful man in the world. And then we come to Genesis 50. Jacob dies, and his brothers are scared to death. What is Joseph going to do with this now? I mean, what would you do with your brother if he sold you into slavery? And they devised a plan and said, let's go to him and say that dad on his deathbed said this, please forgive us. Please forgive us. And that's what leads us to Genesis 50, verse 20. And Joseph responds, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, the Old Testament doesn't tell us God's in control of all things. For almost 20 chapters, Genesis shows us God is in control of all things. At every turn, he wasn't just with Joseph when he was prospering. 
we're, we're told throughout the story, even when he's in prison, God was with Joseph. Even though the cupbearer forgot him, God was with Joseph. This story, this true story, should lead us to believe God is in control of all things, even the bad things. And that God is with us. Peter says in his great sermon in Acts 2, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him as lawless men. We can do evil, sinful things. Just as Caiaphas has done when he says he wants to kill the Messiah. But God is in control of all things. God didn't override Caiaphas. God didn't take a train wreck and say, oh, I I need to interject and make it right again. God was in it from the beginning. Right there, he was in control. And that might be really hard for some of us to understand. It might be hard for us to grasp. Let me take that back. That is hard for us to understand. That in every hardship, in every trial, in every abnormality of this life, we are told that God is with us and that God is faithful to us. Yet the biblical narrative isn't there, isn't given for us to philosophize about, to ask the ethical questions. This text is given us to encourage us that even in our hardships, even when we don't see the beginning from the end, even when we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, God used Caiaphas to bring about his plan of redemption for the entire world. That same God is with us and is faithful to us. Some of you might feel overwhelmed with your children. Or maybe your work. Or maybe your school and your friends. Maybe your finances. Probably your spouse. Maybe some of you are so overcome with what is your place in the world because you're single and feeling alone. planning this sermon when one of our new members and our good friends is diagnosed with cancer. When one of our elder sons can't find an answer to his sickness. It's so terrifying to understand that God is in control and that God is faithful in these times. But that's when it's meant to give us hope. That we can say with David, How long, oh Lord? How could this be happening? Why me? I'm in a mess. 
But the story of God's redemption is that he comes to us in our mess, and he's there with us to the end. God is in our mess. He is in control. He has a plan for all things, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Is God in control of all things? Our answer should be an equivocal yes. God is in control of all things. Because if he's not, we have no hope. The second question, if God is in control of all things, how does God control all things? Francis Schaeffer writes in his book, True Spirituality, the proper understanding of Romans 8.28 is crucial to our understanding of the whole outlook of the Bible. The world as it is now, with the fall, all became abnormal. It is just that... in the individual is sep- it is not just that the individual is separated from God by his true moral guilt, but each of us is not what God made us to be. And beyond that, nature itself is abnormal. The whole cause and effect, significant history is now abnormal. To say to one another, there is much in history which should not be. Thus, Romans 8.28 is not some magical wand and make everything is make sure that everything is fine even when our observation and experiences seems to feel sorrows in the present world no it's because god is infinitely good and in spite of the abnormality he is in control of all things he is in the midst of the battle bringing out good for his people in all Things. This same all things that Paul writes about in Romans 8 is the same all things that he writes about in Ephesians 5. Give thanks always to God in all things. God is working all things together. Everything in the universe. Every water molecule, every atom, Every child, every marriage, every election, even every war is in God's control. God is working in all things. God, John reveals in these words that God's people are not meant to be led into despair. How does God work to bring about his plan for all things? You know what's the ironic part? Caiaphas was the high priest, right? He's the one that makes the sacrifice for the people. Yet what was Caiaphas's offer? Kill Jesus. Kill him for the good of the people. What was Jesus' response? 
kill me for the good of the people. In Jesus, we have a better high priest than Caiaphas ever could imagine, believed that he could be. How does God, in control of all things, he sent Jesus. That's why Paul can say in Galatians, at the fullness of time, from the conception of the world until Jesus, everything worked out so that our great high priest could offer himself for the redemption of his people. This is the good news of the gospel. The Messiah. He would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He would be pierced for our transgressions. God crushed him for us. It was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's purpose. It was the Lord's plan to send Jesus, the Messiah, to save the world. How is God in control? He uses the intentions of a sinful man to bring about his glorious redemption. Our God is so powerful, so in control, that everything works out for the good of his people. Everything. Everything is for our good in Christ. Is God in control of all things? How does God control all things? And lastly, why? Why does God control all things? John tells us, Caiaphas did not say this on its own accord, but being high priest that year, he promised, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Why does God control, control all things? For the good of his people. His children, who are scattered among the nations. This is the why. So that God could redeem his people. That whomever believes, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whomever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, is what John told us just a few chapters ago. And God came and accomplished what he promised to do in Jesus. With this glorious proclamation of the gospel, we cannot limit the work of the cross that it might save. But the truth of the matter is that it does save. There's power in the cross. Christ died to bring them in. He did what he accomplished for his children. The same thought is given in John chapter 10, where he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep 
that are not in the fold, I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The people have been scattered. And Jesus has come to proclaim the good news so that they might be drawn into him. Why is God in control of all things? To bring salvation to his people. To bring salvation to you and to me. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. How will we not know also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against us? No one can frustrate God's purpose. And God's promises stand true in Jesus for all who believe. Why does God do this? That he might secure our redemption. In Christ. But that might, but that might, however, lead us to believe that the goal of creation is for us. But it isn't. The promises and the good of the people in Jesus are given for the glory of God Himself. The glory of God with the manifestation of all his perfections is the ultimate goal of all things. This is why in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to read them. I'm not going to read it all. I'm not going to read it all. But this is what Paul says about why. Why is God in control of all things? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. But listen to this, to the praise of his glorious grace, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ at the plan of the fullness of time to unite all Things, things in heaven and things on earth to the praise of his glory. Which he sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Three times we are told the goal of our redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ is to the praise and glory of God himself. Praise him, praise him, praise him, the eternal king. Praise him, the God of grace. Our God is in control and our God is with us and loves us in Christ. And he meets with us in our need if we come to him by faith. 
If this chapter ended in verse 50, we would have no hope. But luckily, John's gospel ends with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. Praise him. Praise him to the King eternal. Let's pray.